The following lecture is provided by Biblical Training. The speaker is Dr. Bill Mounts. More information is available at www.biblicaltraining.org. Father, we are thankful for our salvation. We are thankful that you loved us and your mercy and grace propelled you to die for us to provide forgiveness for our sins and access to your Father. And Father, we are so thankful that that's not all that happened. We're thankful that you didn't just want that moment in time, but that you want all of us all of the time. We thank you, Father, for the change in our lives and the relationship with you that is now open so that we can live as your children, both while on earth, and then for eternity in heaven. Thank you, Father, that you didn't die just for our souls, but that you died for us, for everything that we are, so that we can bow down everything we are before everything that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week I talked about the fact that after conversion, things are going to change. That in conversion we are born again. And that we are in fact born again into a new life, into a new kind of life. My emphasis this morning is on the fact that this new life of the new believer is different. That the new life of the new believer is and in fact must be different from the life they lived before conversion. I want to emphasize the fact that we've been changed and changed people behave in a changed way. Now this should not come as a shock to anyone. Just think back for a moment to your conversion and remember what happened in your conversion. You certainly understood that you had been separated from God. You had come to an understanding that you were sinful. You came to an understanding that Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty for that sin that you could be forgiven. And certainly you understood that while formerly you did not live in a relationship with God, that after your conversion you did live in a relationship with God. With God, He is your Father and you are His child. I mean, even if you just reflect on those facts, you would say, well, of course my new life as a believer is going to be different. It has to be different because I am different. You certainly understood that in conversion you were called to repent, one of the many ways that Scripture describes conversion. A verse like in Acts chapter 3 where Peter is talking to the, to the people, Peter says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And you, if you mull over what it means to repent, you understand that on one hand, it means to change your thinking, change your thinking about who Jesus is and what he has done. And so in conversion, you you changed your thinking from Jesus being just some historical figure, perhaps, to to believing that he was God. 
That's repentance. But repentance is not only changing your mind, but repentance is also the commitment to change your life, to change your actions, the commitment to turn your back on sin and to turn it towards God to live a new kind of life. I think one of the clearest descriptions of this is in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Paul had evangelized in Thessalonica probably just four to five months earlier. It was a brand new church. He had to leave quickly. And so he wrote back to the Thessalonian church. And listen to his description to them in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. He says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. So that's what repentance is all about, changing your mind and then changing or at least making a commitment to change your actions. And as you understand the concept of repentance, you're going to say, well, of course my new life as a new believer has to be different because I'm different. Perhaps in your conversion, you even understood in the words of Paul to the church at Ephesus that prior to your conversion, you were dead. You were dead in your sin. But when you became a child of God, he made you alive. Marvelous imagery, isn't it? That the fundamental core, the very essence of who you are has been radically and fundamentally changed. I was dead, but now I am alive. And certainly the life of a living person is going to be radically different than the life, quotation marks, of a dead person, right? I mean, people who are alive tend to have a different set of experiences than people who are dead. And perhaps you understood this when you became a Christian, and you say, well, of course my new life as a believer is going to be changed because I was changed. I can't be the same any longer. So even as we reflect over what we understood when we became a Christian, we're not surprised at all to hear the Bible say, life's going to change for you. Things aren't going to be the same anymore. And yet as I reflected on this topic, I started thinking of all the things that happened when you and I became disciples of Jesus Christ. In fact, there were many more things that happened to me when I became a Christian when I was seven years old than a seven-year-old could possibly have understood. And I want this morning to fill out your understanding, your picture of conversion. For some of you, this will be review. Perhaps for some of you who are new in your faith, your response is going to be, that happened? God did that for me? I, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Because I want you to understand that the more you see the change, the more you understand the change that God worked in you, whether you fully understood it or not in your conversion, the more you're going to naturally understand that your new life must be different from your old life. That your new life as a believer is going to be different because I'm different. Let me just start with what happened before conversion. Did you know that it was God who drew you to, your, to himself? Do you understand that when you started, for maybe the first time, started to feel guilty, 
you start to say, oh, that, that wasn't right. And, and just the week earlier, you did the same thing and you didn't feel any guilt. All of a sudden, you started feeling guilt. You started perceiving the need for forgiveness. Do you know that that was God working in you? You, you were dead at the time spiritually. You, you can't feel guilt. Any dead people feel guilt. And that doesn't happen. That was God at work in you, drawing him, drawing you to himself. When you started to have this sense of emptiness and incompleteness, saying, something's missing in my life, that was not a natural thing. That was God saying, I created you for me. And I created a vacuum in your heart, and I'm the only one that can fill it. Sports can't fill it. Wealth can't fill it. Popularity can't fill it. You can try all you want. Nothing can fill it but me. When you started to understand that, that wasn't you doing it. That was God at work drawing you to himself. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And in fact, when you were finally faced with the claims of Christ and said, will you believe? Do you know that the very faith with which you responded was a gift from God? Paul tells the church in Ephesus, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, in other words, this entire salvation process, that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. So even if you didn't fully understand it, that was God working pulling, convicting, encouraging, bringing people into your lives as he draws you to himself. And then finally, when you were faced with making that decision and you did respond in faith in your actual conversion, you some, perhaps it's going to be hard to believe all that God did for you just like that. You were rescued from the kingdom of darkness and brought into his marvelous kingdom of light. You changed allegiances, in other words. Your sins were totally forgiven. There's nothing that you can do to put yourself out of God's ability to forgive you. That's the power and the sufficiency of the cross. You were justified. It's a legal term, meaning you were acquitted of all your guilt and of all your sin. God, the judge, forgave you. You were free from all condemnation because Jesus' death on the cross absorbed all of God's wrath against sin. So you stand without condemnation. There is no one to condemn you before the judge. You were redeemed, a term from slavery where Jesus' death on the cross paid the price to secure your freedom so that you and I are no longer under the mastery of sin. You were redeemed. You were sanctified. We may not always act like it, but we were made holy. Jesus' holiness, his righteousness was imputed, it's called to us. All of that happened when Billy Mounts said yes. And all that happened to you when you said yes to the claims of Christ in your life. But wait, there's more. He caused me to be born again. He made me into a new creation, a new creature. He adopted me as his child. He brought me into a new family with brothers and sisters and a new father, a new inheritance, a new home. 
This world is not my home, my citizenship. Your citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. And then he gave us his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit to encourage us and to guide us and to guarantee that what Jesus has promised to you and to me will in fact come to pass. And you know what? I could go on for pages because the Bible is constantly trying to fill out this picture as it, in a sense, struggles to use language to describe what is indescribable. But the fact is, of course my life is going to be different. It can't possibly be the same because I am not the same. It's just, that's the way it is. One of the most powerful passages that talks about this is in Romans chapter 6. And Paul is having to deal with the issue of ongoing sin, breaking God's laws, in the life of the believer, in the life of a child of God. In other words, what do you do with disobedient children? And in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, he summarizes his answer. He says, how can we who died to sin, still live in it. That's basically what I've been saying. When you think of what happened in conversion, and and the language here is we died to sin, how can we continue to live in sin? I've changed, my life must change with it. And then to explain what he means, he goes into a discussion of baptism. And you may not be aware of what this baptism is, other than perhaps seeing the word Baptist on the names of some churches around town. But Paul goes into a discussion of baptism and its relevance. And I need to fill that out for you, some of you perhaps. If you're to be baptized here, we'll pull the doors apart behind me, and there's a warm hot tub, basically, back there. And you will go down into the water with me or another pastor or your friend or your mentor or who led you to Christ or whatever be the case. And you'll stand in the water and they will ask you to tell your story, your testimony. And then upon profession of faith, on saying, yes, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, they'll take you and they'll dunk you in the water, hold you down for a while and pull you out. Okay, now in a very kind of general way, I guess, that's baptism. Understand that baptism is not an act of salvation. Baptism doesn't save anybody. But baptism is an act of obedience. We're commanded to be baptized by Jesus. And in your baptism, what you're doing is publicly proclaiming that God has changed you. When you are baptized, you're saying, I believe in Jesus. And as you go down under the water, it's not only as if you are washed from your sins, but you are being buried. You are dying to your old self. And as you come out of the water, it's not only again that you've been washed free from your sin because of what Christ did for you on the cross, but you're coming out to a new kind of life, a different life, a changed life. I need to say that as background, otherwise what Paul continues to say in Romans doesn't make any sense. But Romans 6, starting at verse 3, Paul explains, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's saying, think back to your conversion. Think back to the public profession in your baptism of what happened. That as you went under the waters, you were dying to your old self. You were dying with Christ. You are somehow, you and I are mystically joined with Christ. And we died to that old life that we lived. And as we come out of the baptismal waters, we are raised. Just as Christ was raised from the, from the tomb, so also you and I are raised. And just as Christ was raised to a new kind of life, so also you and I come out of our conversion baptismal experience being raised to a new kind of life. That's the point that Paul is making in Romans 6. How can we who have died to sin, buried with Christ, now live in it since we've been raised to a new kind of life? You see, if a person understands what really happens in conversion and they hear the biblical call that your life must be different, they're going to respond, yeah, of course your life is going to be different because I'm different. I've died to sin. How can I live in it? So what does this new life look like? What does this new changed life look like? Well, there's many, many descriptions of it in Scripture. I will be hitting on this topic all the way through this series of talks. But there's two pictures or two teachings of Scripture I want to introduce to you up front to help define what this new life is going to look like. The new life of someone who comes out of conversion is going to be the life of discipleship. When we become Christians... We become followers of Jesus. We become learners of Jesus. We understand that Christianity is not some spiritual spasm. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry for my sins. Christianity is not a one-time event. But we know that conversion is a crucial and necessary step, but it's the first step. And it's the first step in a life of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. One of the most powerful passages along these lines is in the book of Mark, chapter 8, verse 34. Where Jesus says to his disciples, if you want to follow me, if you want to be a disciple, if you want to be a Christian in our language, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Jesus is telling the disciples that if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be a disciple, if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you have to deny yourself. You have to relinquish your will and submit it to the will of God. And then every day we live as one who has been crucified to his own ambitions and desires, his own rights, so to speak, and rather lives for the will of God. And so something happens, and I get hurt. And my sinful response is, I have a right to get angry. That person hurt me. And then I hear the words of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours, God, be done. And I submit my will, I relinquish my will to God, and I forgive that person who hurt me. 
or perhaps something really, really unfair happens to you. And, and your natural response is, I'm going to get even. That wasn't right. I'm going to teach that person a lesson. And then once again, we hear the words of Jesus, who was treated as un- more unfairly. Can I say that in English? It was really unfair what happened to Jesus, a sinless man crucified. So I get something's done that's unfair. My natural response is to want to get even. And I hear the words of Jesus. He says, not my will, but yours be done. And you and I are called to relinquish our wills and to respond in kindness and to respond in humility. Be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, that's what the life of discipleship is about. It's the life of saying, this isn't mine any longer, but I live for your pleasure and your glory, God, and it is not my will. And we daily, by the minute, sometimes I think by the second, are called to relinquish our will and say, I'm not Bill Mounts. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's one of the very powerful pictures of what this new life looks like. A life lived in following Jesus. One of the other pictures that's very powerful, though, is this phrase, fruits of the Spirit. And I really wanted to explain this, but I understand that some of you may not understand any of the words in that phrase, and so let me have a little digression, and then I'll come back to it. When I talk about the fruits of the Spirit, or when I even talk about the Spirit with a capital S, I'm talking about God's Spirit, or someone who is called the Holy Spirit, or in older English, the Holy Ghost. Now, how do I explain that? There's a couple of words. First of all, Christians believe in monotheism. Mono meaning only or one, theism meaning we believe in God. We're monotheists. We believe there's only one God. The Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we're monotheists. We don't believe in multiple gods. We don't believe in local pagan deities. We believe in one God, and his name is Yahweh. But we also believe in a trinity. And we believe in a trinity not because it makes sense to us, but because the Bible teaches it. Trinity is a word that means threeness. And what the Bible teaches is that while God is one, there's also three, and we use the word persons, in God. There is God the Father, and there is God the Son, and there is God the Holy Spirit. Each one fully God, each one with distinct work and job that he does, and yet there is one God. And we believe it simply because it's the only way to understand the Bible. It's, not, it doesn't, it's a mystery. Um, I don't even know if we'll fully understand it when we see him face to face. But we believe that there is one God, and yet he is three. And it is this third member of the Trinity, this Holy Spirit, that we're talking about when we talk about the fruits of the Spirit. Understand, by the way, that it is the Holy Spirit who drew you to God. It is the Holy Spirit who enabled you to respond to the gospel. It is the Holy Spirit who regenerated you and gave you new life. It is the Holy Spirit who guides you and empowers you every day of your Christian walk. And it is the Holy Spirit who gives you the ability to bear fruit. Okay. 
So we have fruits of the Spirit. That's who the Spirit is, third member of the Trinity. So what does it mean to bear fruit? Well, just as a healthy fruit tree produces fruit, a good orange tree produces oranges, a good tangerine tree produces tangerines, so also a healthy Christian's life will change. And those changes we call fruit. It comes out of a passage in a, in a book that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. And in Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 22, Paul writes, But the fruit of the, joy, uh, the, fruit of the Spirit, the changes that the Holy Spirit is going to affect in your life, it, this is what your life is going to look like. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That where there was no love before or perhaps an imperfect kind of love, all of a sudden you're going to realize, my goodness, I, I've always found that person difficult to get along with, but there's something inside of me that wants to put them first. It's called love. You're going to realize that when things get difficult and there's conflict or there's suffering or there's pain, where in the past you completely fell apart, all of a sudden you realize, my goodness, there's joy in the midst of the pain. Where did that come from? You're going to realize that there's a joy that is developing inside of you that is not based on circumstances, but is something that is down deep based in the love and the joy of your relationship with God through Jesus Christ. These are the fruits of the Spirit, and this is where your life, new believers, is headed, through the work of God to start experiencing these kinds of changes. And you know, you may already have started to see this. It's a process. Sometimes it's slower than we like. Sometimes we stumble. But nonetheless, it is a process and change and growth as we walk as disciples of Jesus Christ, bearing fruit, changing in our lives. I think a logical question is, is this change automatic? Or another way to ask it is, what is my role in this change? Or is there any role in, do I play a role at all? Let me share a few things briefly. First of all, no, the change is not automatic. It's not automatic. You can fight it, and you can win at your peril. The change that God wants to effect in your life is not an automatic. Now, when you and I became Christians, the mastery and the tyranny that sin had over you was broken. You no longer have to sin. But sin is still present. And sin is not passive. I think in my mind, this is one of the lessons I've been learning this year. For some reason, I, I had this picture of sin as passive. And just kind of lurking around in the resource, recesses of my mind. And, oh, you know, it might be a good idea to sin that way. I mean, it's just kind of this passive view. Sin's not passive, is it? Sin is active. It is aggressive. It's going to do everything it can to bring you back to Satan. Because when you and I became Christians and we were moved out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, we made an enemy, didn't we? And he is a formidable enemy. And his name 
is Satan. But greater is Jesus than Satan. And he has conquered Satan. But Satan did not like losing you from his kingdom. And he's going to fight. The change is not automatic. It's not just something that kind of happens. But now on the other hand, don't get discouraged. (laughs) On the other hand, you're not going to be able to change on your own. I mean, it's not like God sitting there, okay, now you have love. And, and you have peace. You know, that, and somehow we feel like, oh, there's all these things I have to do. And no, that's not what's going on. But rather, there's this marvelous middle position, the biblical position, that said God is going to be at work in you, and he's going to be giving you new desires, and he's going to be giving you the ability to accomplish those desires. And then he calls you to, and I hesitate to use this word, but I don't know another word, cooperate. Now we're not talking about salvation. I did not cooperate with God in my salvation. I was dead at the time. I didn't do anything to earn God's favor. But when it comes to areas of Christian growth, God gives us abilities, and then through the power of his spirit, he enables us to move forward, to take that next step. But we still must take the next step. The two strongest verses along these lines, uh, one's in Philippians, in chapter 2. And Paul is talking again to the church that is in Philippi. And he says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. In other words, you're not earning your salvation, but you're, you're, you're doing the next thing. You're, you're working out the consequences of your conversion. And then he says, for God is at work in you. And if you can stop right there and say, that's, that's incredible. The God who creates galaxies with distances beyond human comprehension is at work in me. God is at work in you. And then Paul says, giving you the desire and then the ability to do it. I can't do it on my own, and neither can you, and God knows that. Our frames are but dust, the psalmist says. But having given us the desire and then the ability, he then says in a passage like Romans 12, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, because of all that God has done in his mercy, I appeal to you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. What does that mean? Do not be conformed to this world. As Phillips translates it, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that's the balance of this incredibly new and great Christian walk. That God gives us desires. He gives us through the power of his spirit the ability to pursue love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But then he says, you need to take the step. You need to do that as well. And I'm reminded of passages like in Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. See, that's what we do. And then the proverb continues. And he will make straight your paths. That's God's part. Trust in him. Lean on him. He is our rock. He is our refuge. 
and he will direct our paths. He will make our paths straight. You and I are called to be the salt of the earth. We're to be different from everyone else. And as we look back over conversion, what we did understand and what we didn't understand, our answer is, duh, of course life is going to change. Life has to change because I'm different. It's a wonderful walk. It's a joyous walk as we are changed from one degree of glory to the next and look like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, my first prayer is that nobody be scared or frightened or tenuous or thinking that somehow there's a whole bunch of more things we can and can't do because that's that's not what I wanted to say. Help us, Father, to understand that we who have been born again by the power of a living God have been made something fundamentally and essentially different from what we were before. So life can never be the same. We thank you, Father, that you do not call us to be different by our own efforts and our own abilities. They failed before we became a Christian. They will fail after we become a Christian. But rather, Father, we thank you that it is you who is at work in us, giving us the desires giving us through your spirit the ability to perform. I pray, Father, for myself and for my brothers and sisters that we will take the next step in this wonderful journey of discipleship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this lecture brought to you by biblicaltraining.org. Feel free to make copies of this lecture to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.biblicaltraining.org. There you will find the finest in evangelical teaching for use in the home and the church, and it is absolutely free. Our curriculum includes classes for new believers, lay education classes, and seminary-level classes taught by some of the finest seminary teachers drawn from a wide range of evangelical traditions. Our mailing address is Post Office Box 28428, Spokane, Washington, 99228, USA.